0: Sometimes I, I described the last uh, five years as, you know, the most enjoyable circus I've ever walked in on.
1: That's David Lee, CFO of Impossible Foods, the company that is now famous for making bleeding burgers out of plants. Talk about their crazy
0: growth. This is a company that's grown its retail business, for example, like 66 times this year. We start with 150 grocery stores. We're at 10,000 and we'll have more soon. So when you have hypergrowth like this, particularly when you walk into a company before it even has a business, there are absolutely moments when the chaos uh, can feel like it has no direction. But that's the crazy secret of um, Pat's brilliance.
1: Now, it's true that wherever in the world you're listening to this, the chances are still high you've never tried an Impossible Burger. But you've probably read about it or other non-meat products, and make no mistake, something like it is coming to a store near you. So we thought this was a fair question to ask this week. Have we reached the end of meat?
0: Our house is still on fire.
1: This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. We have to rise to this occasion.
2: The transition isn't going to be easy
1: So, James, have we reached
2: the end of meat? Well, let's talk about the sheer scale of the meat industry for a moment. I mean, it's a whopper. Oh, God. You didn't just do that. We're going to edit that out, right? Um, I'll think about it. Seriously, though, it's huge. In value terms, we're talking about over a trillion dollars. About a billion people are employed in the production of meat globally as of 2020. So it's going to take a while to replace that. That said, industry top brass clearly have it on their radar. Recently, we've seen meat lobbyists make the case to EU legislators that the terms burger and sausage should be banned from any product that does not in fact contain the flesh of dead animals. The industry has argued that vegetarian products should not be called burgers or sausages because doing so might confuse customers into thinking that they contain meat. The European Parliament disagreed, but as you may or may not know, there is already a similar ban for alternative dairy products, which doesn't seem to have done much to slow the growth of almond milk and the like, but it does all go to show that the meat industry isn't gonna go anywhere without fight. And as discussed, in fighting terms, it's a goliath. That kind of scale can't be replaced overnight, nor would we want to, since the meat industry keeps such huge numbers of people employed all over the world. These sorts of debates are bread and butter to Lisa Sweet, head of the Future of Protein program at the World Economic Forum. And why exactly does the World Economic Forum have a Future of Protein program?
3: Protein really sits at the intersection of many different agendas. It's critical to human nutrition, to livelihoods, to economic development. It sits at the center of the food systems and feeding a population in a healthy and nutritious way. It focuses and really greatly impacts the environmental ecosystem.
1: Obviously, this is a podcast about the environment. So we're going to focus on what meat means for the planet. And it's hard to overstate it.
3: The big picture on protein's environmental impact is that livestock generates approximately 15% of the total greenhouse gas equivalent emissions per year. Um, So if you look at that in the broader perspective, it really how you produce and consume protein from the environmental lens has a significant impact on emissions. There's also issues such as biodiversity and land use, water utilization, and a number of other factors that come into the protein ecosystems.
1: So of course I asked Lisa our question, have we reached the end of meat?
3: I I don't see a future where there isn't meat but I am hopeful that the future of meat will look very different. Maybe your kids won't be eating meat every day. I don't know if, if you yourself eat meat every day, uh, but they'll think of it on special occasions. They'll think of it uh, and and aim to choose products that are sustainably sourced, um, but they won't think about it in the same way that, that they think about it now or that you think about it now.
1: Which leaves one to wonder, If that's true of my kids, what are they going to eat instead to get their protein?
2: And there are so many answers to this, way too many for this podcast. Plant-based meat, lab-grown meat, insects, and that's not even the really wacky stuff, which we will get to. The race is well and truly on to replace animal flesh with other edibles. Anyway, let's start with what's probably the most famous, plant-based Impossible Burgers aren't yet available here in London, but I have had other plant-based burgers and I thought they were pretty similar to meat patties I've known and loved in my life.
1: Impossible Foods isn't the only success story here, but it is one of the biggest. Officially a unicorn, since it's now valued at something like $4 billion. This is a company that might as well have Saving the Planet on its logo. In fact, saving the planet is literally its reason for being. The man who founded it is a pretty extraordinary guy, Pat Brown. He was already in his 60s and a very accomplished scientist when he decided he was going to change his career completely to try and tackle what he saw as the world's biggest environmental problem the use of animals for meat. It's worth checking out his Wikipedia entry honestly, but to cut a very fascinating story short, he realized that he could create a product out of plants that could replace meat. He bet that he could do this well enough to make it big with consumers and left his lab at Stanford behind. Impossible Foods is the outcome of that bet. The company has raised a billion and a half dollars now from huge names like Bill Gates and Vinod Khosla, and most of it in just four years. It's fair to say that they've had an easier time raising money than your average startup. And yes, that is obviously a lot to do with the fact that they have the potential to make huge amounts of money. But it's not incidental that they have such an appealing mission. Being a company that's actively looking to save the planet has tangible
0: benefits. We have a product that meat eaters love, you know, and it's a multi-trillion dollar meat eater market. 90% of our consumers are meat eaters. We regularly serve uh, the same product from an animal versus ours blind to meat eaters. And we regularly find that our products at Impossible Foods are oftentimes preferred. Heads up, burger to burger, sausage to sausage, uh, versus the product from an animal. I mean that that is what's required to have the impact we hope for. In terms of the future, as you ask, I think people will vote with their stomachs, and we're betting that meat eaters will change the world. That they will happily buy. Cravable, changeable, delicious meat that has fewer compromise. And in our case, it's meat that, you know, is delicious and hits the spot. But, you know, it doesn't have the things you don't want. It doesn't have cholesterol. It doesn't have the negative impact on climate change. Um, And we think that technology um, will allow us to create better and better products. Um, It's a market-based bet while we're just getting to scale. Um, here in the U.S., um, we think that our our mission requires us to be global uh, eventually.
2: Note that David doesn't talk about the mission being to get rid of meat, but to do away with the use of animals for meat. And nobody's saying it's going to be easy.
0: Well, let's talk about meat eaters. Uh, You know, I'm a meat eater. We meat eaters, we have an insatiable demand, desire, addiction, uh, for me. So let's be clear, meat is an everyday part of our lives. You don't see cannibalization, if you will, of market share in meat. You know, we all have our favorite places to go, and whether we procure it and cook it at home or uh, go to a restaurant, we're addicted to it. So the industry is unique. It's global. It, you know, the product has to deliver not just on that high bar of craveability, The product has to be magically changeable. It has to be relevant in Asia or the United States or Canada. Of course, there's more to meat
1: than burgers. I mean, it's one thing selling plant patties in San Francisco, but how's this stuff going to go down somewhere like Argentina? Those guys don't know what a vegetarian is. Some geographies are definitely way more carnivorous than others. But here's the thing. There's a lot of startups getting into this space now. So whatever your preference is, wherever you are in the world, someone is working on a solution to suit your taste. If you're truly a diehard carnivore, for example, maybe this next one's for you.
4: Mosameet was founded um, by two people. One of them is um, Mark Post, who was actually a doctor working on um, cardiovascular grafts and um, Peter Vastrata, who comes from the meat industry. And um, they both got involved in a project back in, I think it was roughly 2008 in the Netherlands, to look at the potential of cultured meat. Um, this idea had been around for quite a long time. They managed to get funding a um, million dollars from Sergey Brin, the, the co-founder of Google. To create the first prototype, so the which was a hamburger, um, so they made this um, in two thousand and thirteen, and sort of presented that to the world, and it got a, a lot of attention globally. And um, they thought that the next step they realized was you know to scale it up, and that would take um, private investment to sort of get the funding to do that. So whilst they personally like had no desire to create a company they they decided to make moza meat to to take that next step and um, um so that's how we were born in 2016 and um since then we've just been sort of working on perfecting the science um, to create meat that's um, as close as possible to livestock meat and and to scale it up. That's
1: Sarah Lucas from Mosa Meat, a team that's working on growing meat in labs. Now, I'm guessing this will appeal more to others than not, but don't forget, the meat industry is over a trillion dollars. That's so big, none of these meat alternatives need to be for everyone. If animal flesh is going to be replaced, it will take all sorts of alternatives. But you can't get much closer to flesh than actual flesh, and this stuff would also be a massive win for the environment.
4: There's been like various life cycle analyses that have been done looking at the, um, the potential benefits for the environment and they show sort of in the best case scenario, we could save sort of um, up to 96% of greenhouse gas emissions, um, 99% of water use currently used in agriculture, um, 99% of, of land as well, um, which of course um also relates to um, the greenhouse gas issue because if we could free up, you know, even if it wasn't 99% of land, even if it was 50% of the land used for agriculture, and that could be reforested, that could be, um, you know, an, an enormous source for um, carbon um, capture as well. So um, it, it could have a, a very um, significant benefit for the environment if we can make it a reality. So, how do they actually do it? I feel like people are gonna wanna know. Um, The first hamburger that we made, so we made three of them back in 2013 and that took the full million. So, around, yeah, 300,000 for a hamburger. It it wasn't cheap and obviously that was because we were, um, it was completely new science. Um, It hadn't been done before growing bovine cells outside of a cow um, and turning them into muscle tissue and um, and we were doing it also very manually so one hamburger contains about 20,000 muscle fibers and we this process wasn't automated at all so um, one of our scientists sort of literally had to like lay 20,000 muscle fibers you, you know using an instrument like tweezers lay them one on top of each other and, um, you know, and grow these strands individually over many, many months. So it was a very labour-intensive process. In recent years, there's been something of an explosion of companies around the world
1: working on lab-grown meat of all kinds. Some are doing minced meat, some are doing full cuts, some are doing beef, some are doing chicken. And yes, if you're wondering, there are also companies that are growing fish cells. Since they're all the same actual cells that we eat, these lab-grown offerings should be pretty good at replicating the flavors we're used to.
2: But if lab-grown stuff sounds far out, wait till you get a load of our next offering. Lisa Dyson is the very accomplished woman at the helm of a high-tech startup called Air Protein.
5: I envision a world where meat is made in a matter of days using a technology that doesn't require animals. I imagine a world where you're getting your, your chicken uh, your beef, your pork uh, that you want for your favorite curries or otherwise or your burgers or uh, the other cuisines that you love uh, in a way that is very resource efficient, in a way that, that is is kinder to the land, kinder to the earth, does not emit lots of greenhouse gases, and that is very healthy and very nutritious. And we're doing it with a technology that is very similar to Fermentation It's very similar to brewing beer or making yogurt, uh, which is one of the reasons why we call it a probiotic production process. Uh, and it's leveraging elements of the air that we're breathing now, carbon dioxide, oxygen as an input, uh, and we're able to make a really nutritious protein uh, ingredient that we then can leverage uh, to make a, uh, a meat product. If you want to do things differently, you have to really think outside the box. And so we were able to leverage work that uh, was originally done by, by NASA. They had some concepts on how to make food uh, much more effectively if you're in a spaceship going to Mars or a distant planet. We've had a number of tastings, and people have been very pleased with what they've, we've, they've uh, tasted. And we introduced the world's first air chicken last year, uh, and we've been able to, to make air chicken and, and other uh, types of meat analogs as well. Um, this, with this technology, we can make everything from a pork analogue to beef analogs uh, to seafood and other types of, of poultry.
2: This is seriously experimental stuff, and Lisa has been made a technology pioneer by the World Economic Forum. As with all the business people I spoke to for this podcast, she is out to grab a slice of a market, but there's no doubting the sincerity of the environmental mission here.
5: My journey to try to have an impact on climate change really began in 2005 when I uh, went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and really saw the devastation that a huge weather event could create Uh, and stepping back as a scientist. Uh, later in life, just thinking about climate science and thinking about how these once in a hundred year storms were happening more free- more frequently and with greater intensity and thinking about droughts that were being extended and fires that were resulting from these ex- extended uh, drought seasons uh, and just really wanting to have an impact. And so I believe that technology could, Uh, be a part of the solution. NGOs have their role, policymakers have their role, regulatory bodies, but how could I use technology to be a part of the solution? And then as a business person, as someone who worked in the business industry for a number of years, you know, if we can do that in a way that was good for business, then, then it could be scaled by
2: business. Making protein out of the air has pretty obvious implications for the use of livestock, but this is also potentially huge for land use.
5: We're excited by... The movement from just meat made from animals to meat made from alternative sources. And one of the reasons why they're doing it is is this focus on reducing resources to make food. Uh, And and we know that we can go a step further. And that's really where we come in. Uh, You go from requiring uh, land to feed an animal, uh, as well as the land for that animal to grow, to not needing the animal, but just needing the land. And we don't need any arable land for our protein. Uh, so we're, we've taken a step further, and we've gone beyond the need of, of farmland, essentially, for the protein production process. Uh, and we use elements of the air directly and are able to make protein in a matter of days. Uh, so going back to the example of a soy farm. Uh, it, if you're going to make an alternative meat product from soy, that's a, a step in, in the right direction from a perspective of resource utilization. Uh, but it takes a soy farm the size of Texas to give you the same amount of protein that you can get from an air protein farm the size of Walt Disney World. Uh, so we're taking land reduction, water reduction, GHG intensity to the next level with our
2: uh, process. So I'm getting kind of disillusioned now because we've had three interviewees and not one of them has said anything about bacon. I really hope someone out there is working on that. Certainly I know there are plant-based alternatives to pork out there. Burgers might be a big play in the US, but in Asia, pork is king. So I had to speak to David Young. He's a Hong Kong-based businessman and campaigner behind something called Green Mondays. Originally, this was basically just a movement aimed at getting people to give up meat for one day a week, get people to slowly eat less meat by having one vegetarian day in the week, which might sound unambitious, but David sees as a realistic starting point
6: for people. However, I think the shift doesn't need to be an all or nothing. I mean, if the world can reduce meat consumption by 20%, 30%, 50%, that would do Unbelievable good for us, for the planet, and for future generations. So, um, the key, and that's why our organization is called Green Monday, is you know, hey, start with one day a week, you know, create a flexitarian movement. You, people do not need to be like 100% plant based. Of course, if they naturally escalate to that point, that's great. But, I mean, I personally do not think that's a must. I mean, it would make the barrier too high.
2: Campaigning can only take you so far, though. So more recently, he's taken the next logical step for his market, which is to develop a plant-based alternative to pork. It's called Omnipork, and yet again, it's a huge success story.
6: In Asia, the most consumed meat is pork. Um, Pork is animal protein. China, more than 60% of meat consumption is pork. Um, In Asia Pacific alone, annually, we consume 53 million tons of pork just asia pacific not global (laughs) so that is a staggering number um uh, it's only natural that we start with pork now pork is not just one product right i mean people obviously they're different forms different uh you know different forms different shapes different you know parts of pig or pork that people consume so we start with the mince uh, and then recently we launched luncheon meets Omnipork luncheon which we actually just partner with McDonald's and is now in McDonald's Hong Kong and Macau um, and it is a huge hit so yes Omnipork in the last couple of years I mean it has become quite a whirlwind uh, and really takes the market by storm and people now realize that there's a low calorie you know low fat and then no cholesterol uh, no hormones no antibiotics etc so they can still cook the dishes that they like uh, with pork, but now with a leaner and of course, you know, animal-free product. At the end, you know, we're talking about food and people have such emotional attachment to food. So how to address the social side, how to not just be, hey, you know, meat has X carbon footprints and it's bad for the world. That's why you need to reduce. I mean, if people are that logical or rational, then, we would have much less problems in the world. We must combine, if, if anything I learned is that, yes, we can bring the facts, we can, we can bring out the data, but at the end, you got to provide people with tasty, affordable, accessible options that, you know, doesn't matter if they walk into a pizza restaurant, a burger chain, um, you know, a hotel, Michelin star, etc. They will be able to find plant-based options, tasty ones. So we cannot only talk about the crisis without offering solution. And in the case of food, um, you got to give them alternative, just like with vehicles. um, You know, they are obviously electric vehicles um, or with energy, they're solar panels and wind turbines. So what are the solar panel and wind turbine of meats?
1: So David was the obvious person to ask about the world's biggest meat market. Should we be hopeful that China is going to move away from animal meat?
6: It is difficult. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like we can just go in and, you know, within two, three years, we will just convert 1.4 billion people. It is not going to be an easy journey. I mean, I would actually argue that China may be one of the toughest uh, country and market in the world to change. Now, one thing we already are kind of on the losing end at the beginning is animal welfare is not a, a huge issue in China. Chinese consumers... Um, and the general public I mean do not concern themselves with animal welfare um, it's not so so already um, you lose that batch of people who are super super gung-ho about plant space because they don't want any animals to be harmed so that is a tiny segment in China virtually non-existent so that alone and then second you know in terms of environment uh, climate change um, Again, you know these are not kind of the most high on the list agenda items uh, for the general mainland consumers, so it is we need to find the right buttons to push. We are getting approached by a lot of major uh, you know chains and you know vendors, um, both retail and food service so now the overall global momentum obviously. Uh, it does feed into china so so that part is encouraging again we are feeding off each other's momentum whenever something happens in you know the the success of beyond meats in the us including its ipo that raises awareness that makes people think that hey maybe okay. this is a field for investment and also this is something that you know the next generation consumers globally will be seeking so so it is it is growing i'm just saying that um, it is a massive country with obviously a massive population. So, changing 1.4 billion people, I, you know, that is one of the tallest tasks ever.
2: David told me that the factor he thought most likely to move the dial in China would be public health. Obviously, it's a market where government attitudes play a bigger role than most, and officials are, of course, pretty aware of this aspect at the moment.
6: I, I absolutely know that they are paying attention to this because they know. I mean, again, with African swine fever still happening right now, um, the the whole meat and food supply chain is under a lot of con- a lot of stress, um, and it has been the vulnerability has been fully exposed. So, are they paying attention to this? Absolutely. Are they openly, publicly saying that hey? You know, people, you know, you should be not eating chicken from now on. I mean, they are not there yet, um, but no doubt. I mean, I, I believe, I know they are paying attention. 75% of, you know, zoonotic diseases come from animals. So it is actually becoming a frequent, regular occurrence. I really hope people learn from this mega crisis and disaster of COVID-19. And we we got to think from the root cause.
1: This point came up in pretty much every interview, to be honest. If people are not swayed by the environment or animal welfare, it seems those who would like us to transition to meat alternatives
4: see the prospect of another pandemic as a pretty strong motivator. So I think that, yeah, COVID has, if anything, increased the um, interest we're receiving about cultured meat. Um, and of course, um, sort of separate to COVID, there's the the issue of antibiotics, which is, is really important. Um, Infectious disease um, doctors around the world are, are getting increasingly concerned about um, the emergence of antibiotic-resistant um, superbugs. Um, patients turning up in hospitals with, you know, diseases that they could have treated in previous years and now can't because they've become resistant. And um, this can be, you know, um, tracked back to the the really heavy use of antibiotics um in livestock production um and this is something that you know the world health organization for instance has said um that they think that um, resistant superbugs will kill more people by 2050 than cancer and heart disease combined Mm. um so whilst it's probably not getting as much attention as it should given how much of a risk this is emerging to be it's definitely um, something that we we need to get on top of and it's another big advantage of cultured meat because we don't because it's being produced in a you know not in in um, Uh, sort of dirty slaughterhouses that can be produced in completely sterile conditions. You don't need to use any antibiotics at all. But what about all the people
1: who work in the meat industry? I mean, there's still going to be millions of people all over the world who want to eat good old fashioned dead animals (laughs) and also farm them. Governments aren't just going to let those people go straight to the wall. In fact, subsidies to the industry globally are around $700 billion. That's a lot to unpick. So meat alternatives are going to face a harder time if we can't figure out how to look after those people. Another
3: barrier is the farmer. Um, And this is really a a key and critical piece that um, all of the stakeholders need to be sensitive to and conscious about. How do we bring the farmer along in this journey? As I mentioned earlier, there's over a billion um, lives who are involved and livelihoods that are involved in uh, animal-based production systems and the animal-based value chains. And they need a livelihood. They need to understand their place in, in the future markets and the future demand. Um, and there's a way to do that holistically and bring them along in this conversation. And there's a way to not bring them along. And so the, the players in the field, the actors who are... Uh, working on these new products need to think through what this might mean to the farmers and uh, think through how they can involve them in this process and how they can help them transition uh, into the future model, uh, whatever it may be. You know, different incentive packages, different changes in, in regulatory approaches. For instance, the European Green Deal and the Farm to Fork Strategy is looking to um, help pay farmers for ecosystem services. We need these types of incentives in play. So it's not just about the the Mosa meat or um, Memphis meat or Shiok or or some of the other innovators that are coming up with uh, these incredible new ways to grow food. We need to help create the whole of society change, the whole of stakeholder change. And that includes a role for the governments to play. It includes a role for the consumers to play and where they place their dollars. Um, it can it includes a role for the farmers to play. Um, and I think there in particular, uh, one of the things that we've been doing and looking at is bringing the farmers much closer closer to the consumers to understand how their tastes are changing, how their interests are changing, so that they don't hear that through all of the middlemen um, in the process of creating food. And they can get their, their hands and their hearts on the pulse of what the consumer of tomorrow really wants.
2: OK, cars on the table moment. Is this the end for animal meat? Well, probably not. I mean, clearly, meat alternatives look set to make serious inroads, but the livestock industry is just so enormous, it's going to take a long time to be replaced. It sounds like if I ever have kids, they're still pretty likely to eat meat, but they are going to think about it differently. Funnily enough, their attitude might well be closer to how my grandparents would have thought of meat as a luxury that one would eat on occasion and treat with a degree of reverence. And that, from an environmental perspective, would be no bad thing and with that i'm going for lunch
1: thanks james that's a wrap for this week if you're curious about any of the above keep an eye out on your next shopping trip meat alternatives are coming fast next week we're going to be talking about direct air capture is it a flash in the pan or should we be taking it more seriously please join us for that and until then farewell